Well, if y'all turn back to Mark chapter 10, we're going to read verses 32 through 45. And it says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, and saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, you know, they aren't going to set Jesus up. He says, you're going to have to tell me exactly what you want before I say yes. Isn't that what your kids try to do sometime? Give us what our desire. Well, you better tell me what you want. So he said unto them, what would ye that I should do unto you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, No, you can't. He said, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so it shall not be among you. But whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever shall be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And Lord, I just ask through this message that you'll do a work in all of us and that you'll give us all a servant's heart, that you'll give us the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. And that can be manifested to us and in our attitude towards you and towards each other and others that we come across. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So we saw last time that one of the great principles in discipleship. So these chapters we've been going through here, the beginning of chapter 8, right on up to where we're at now, he's given us really principles of discipleship, and they all relate to the cross. But the last thing we saw was that we must be willing to become a little child if we want to enter the kingdom of God. So like we said, it's not just a matter of a little child. It's not a matter of becoming cute and cuddly as much as he's saying we need to recognize that we're weak, that we're needy, and that we're helpless. As we said last time, that blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how we have to see ourselves. And we really have no social status to boast of in the kingdom of God. And so we said the rich young ruler is given as an example of a would-be disciple. He was unwilling to accept that role, the role of a little child. So he'd accomplished much. He was rich. He kept the law. So he was a moral person, outwardly moral man. And he was high on the social ladder. He was a ruler. And so he'd done a lot. He'd done a lot and inherited a lot as a young man, and he wanted more. He says, I'd like to have eternal life too. And Jesus says, well, listen, there's some conditions there. There's conditions for inheriting eternal life, and they are nothing like what you think. So he's saying, if you want to come in to my kingdom and you want to inherit eternal life, he's saying, you've got to become just like the little child, like what he had talked about. And you've got to give everything away that the world counts as dear. All of your wealth, he says, give it to the poor, take up your cross, and come follow me. So what was he telling that rich young ruler he had to do? He says, you've got to give up your status, your security, and come be a helpless babe in my arms and follow me. And he wasn't willing to do that. The man couldn't do it. That's not what he was wanting to hear from Jesus. That's not what he was expecting to hear. And it said he turned and he walked the other way. And it said he was sad and grieved at what Jesus said, at his demands. And Jesus, after he walked away, he said it is impossible for the rich, for a man like that, the rich, to be saved. And his disciples, they are beside themselves. Because all the great saints in, in the old times, David, Abraham, Isaac, they all were wealthy. Solomon, they were doing pretty good, weren't they? 
And they're like, if that's the case, who then can be saved? It said they were astonished. And Jesus, it says, looking upon them, said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And we talked, I'm not going to get into all this again, but we talked about with man it is impossible to be saved. Utterly impossible. I want to talk about that, just reiterate that, because no man born into this world has a heart for the Lord. No man does. Only God, by His sovereign grace, can change any man's heart. And we try to think sometimes, well, that guy just seems like a good guy, seems like he has a heart for the Lord and all that. It's not the case. Nobody does. So no one changes his own heart. No one wakes up one day and decides, I think today I'm going to repent and become a Christian. With men, he says, it is impossible. We've got to take that seriously. He says, but with God, all things are possible. So only God's Spirit can do it. He, only God's Spirit can convict us. Repentance, do we understand repentance is a gift? The ability to turn away from your sins and then accept the offer of the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith, all of that is a gift from God. It's all a work that's done by the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so dangerous if you're in here tonight, whoever you are, and God's dealing with your soul and His Spirit is dealing with your soul to not respond to that. To turn a shoulder if he's dealing with it because he can withdraw his spirit. And he did that in Noah's day, didn't he? Because he said in Genesis 6, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And I'm saying, I see that that's what's happening in America today. His spirit is being withdrawn and he's not striving with people in this country like he was at one time. It's being taken away. So it says this, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, he begs them, he literally begs the Corinthians not to ignore the work of the Spirit, the grace of God in their lives. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, we then as workers together with him, with God, also he says we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in an acceptable time I have heard you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And so when is the acceptable time? When does Paul say is the day of salvation? He went on to write this. He says, behold, see, now is the accepted time. And behold, now is the day of salvation. So if God's dealing with you now, any of us in any way, now is the time to respond because this is the only day we have, isn't it? Because we're in no way promised tomorrow. And so we need to respond when God's Spirit's dealing with us. It's a serious thing, isn't it? It really is for all of us. So in tonight's text, once again, we see that the, a matter of greatness, who is great, is on the minds of the apostles. And they actually, they seem to be obsessed with this, with being great, with being great in the world. And the problem began, you're in chapter 10, if you just go back to chapter 8, verse 29. And this is where it all started. So actually, up to this point, chapter 8, verse 29, is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Because up to this point, we're seeing miracles. We're seeing things that are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And then from here on out, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm going to reign and rule. But there's going to be suffering involved. And that's not a popular message these days, from what I understand. But it's still the message of what we have here. So when we look at chapter 8, verse 29... He said unto them, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And so once they understood that, and they did, they understood that much of it. They'd seen his glory, Mount of Transfiguration, walking on water, all of those miracles that he's doing, casting out demons, the authority he spoke with. They've got that saving confession. They see that much. But all they can think about is his glory and kingdom and that they're going to get a share in it. That's all they can think about it. And so when he tells them, so right there they make that confession in verse 29, but when he tells them for the first of three times in verse 31 about his coming suffering and death, right there in verse 31, he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, the chief priests, scribes, and killed after three days. After that happens, he gets rebuked by Peter in the next verse. And he spake that openly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. 
And Jesus is like, wait a minute, Peter, you're totally misunderstanding this. In verses 34 through 38, we won't read them again. He's saying, what you need to have to understand is you want to follow me, and you rightly do because you believe I'm the Messiah. I'm God's anointed king, the son of David. I am all of that. He says, but you just need to understand, and all of us need to understand this. If we're going to follow him, there is a cross we have to bear. There is. There's no way of getting around that. And so it doesn't just involve glory. The glory will follow. But what comes first? The cross has got to come first. And a lot of people today, they don't want to hear about suffering and the cross. And so he goes on. You go back over to chapter 9, verse 31. And once again, so you have 831, 931. Makes it easy to remember. Once again, look what we have there in chapter 931. He taught his disciples and said unto them, the Son of Man, once again, delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed. He shall rise the third day. Tells him again, doesn't he? And they can't understand it. Because the next thing you know, for the second time, they're arguing. They don't understand. For the second time, they don't understand. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And we have that, verses 33 to 35. And he comes to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them, well, what was it you guys were disputing along the way, by the way, with yourselves? They held their peace. They're embarrassed. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves what? Who should be the greatest? And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, if any man desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And guess what? They can't remember very long, can they? Because we're right back into it again tonight in our text over in chapter 10. That's what we have here, isn't it? So verse 32, it says this. It says, they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them. And as he's going before them, it says a funny thing. They're amazed. And as they followed or astonished and as they followed, they're afraid, amazed and afraid says he's walking on ahead of his disciples. And the reason is, is they can see he is determined that he is going to Jerusalem. says his face was set towards Jerusalem in Luke 9, 30. It says that. Isaiah 50, it says this about him as he's going into Jerusalem. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I shall not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. He has got his face set like a flint. And it goes on in Isaiah 57 to say, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Because we'll see there is one thing. These are a little bit different, all these different accounts where he talks about his upcoming suffering and death. But there is one thing that's the same in all three of them. And you know what that is? The ending. Because he doesn't stay in the grave. He doesn't continually suffer, does it? On the third day, he's saying, I will be raised again. So it's not just we got suffering ahead of us, and that's the end of the story, is it? Praise God, we all will be raised again to glory. We do have to remember that that's part of it. But Jesus has his fate set towards Jerusalem. And his disciples, the reason they're amazed and troubled is they're like, they know what those leaders are thinking about him. They want to kill him. They are going to kill him. And they know they are, he's headed into trouble, headed there. I mean, they don't know exactly what, but he keeps telling them he's going to die and suffer at the hands. And they know, yeah, they're wanting to kill you. It's going to happen. And here we are. You're leading us on. You're leading us right into this trouble. And if it's going to happen to you, it's probably going to happen to us. And so they're amazed and they're a little bit afraid. And they're right. Is <laughs> that you're heading into trouble, you're going to suffer and... They're right. Guess what? We're going to follow him. That's going to happen to us too, isn't it? That's what he says. So what can we learn about this, seeing him just briefly on this? Because we see his humility here, walking on ahead, going to suffer for our sake and their sake, and his willingness to suffer. Willingness. He's not shrinking back in fear, is he? He knows exactly what's coming better than they do. They haven't figured it out yet. They still haven't figured it out. But he's leading the way, isn't he? That's what we read there in verse 32. And as they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, Jesus went before them. So you think about it. A good leader, what does a good leader do? He'll never ask anybody to do something that he's not willing to do himself. 
And he's leading the way right to the cross. He's showing them this is how it works. You know, General Patton, he's telling those troops, he's wanting these guys to be across that river. He's wanting his march to go on to get up, whatever that was, Sicily. Is that the country? I forget. But anyways, here this one group. They're trying to figure out how to get across this river, and it's critical that they get across. And the guy's looking at his map, and all of a sudden he looks up, and guess who's already across the river? Patton. He looked like, how did he get over there? And Pat's like, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you over here? That guy, he's like, you better get over here like right now or you're going to be demoted and someone else is going to be. And that guy's putting his map away and he's getting over that river as quick as he can. But the point is, Patton didn't just say get over that river and stand in the rear. He's a leader. He's leading. He got across there. There's where you go. I found it. It's right down there. You put your map away, go down there, get across and you can join me. And that's what we have Jesus doing here. He doesn't ask us. We need to remember this and we need to think about this. He's not asking us to pick up our cross and suffer no matter how bad it is. Go through trials. He's not doing that sitting up in heaven on a throne. He came down here and led the way for us, didn't he? Suffered more than any of us have really up to this point. So he crossed that river of suffering, so to speak, like Patton crossed that river of suffering ahead of us. And he is now encouraging us to follow him. That's what he's doing. And it's right there, if you want to read it, in Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Listen, for it became him for whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory. That's us. To bring us unto glory, it says, he made, God made the captain, Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's led the way. That's the way we have to go, but he's our captain, and he was made perfect through suffering, and he can lead us right through there. He's been through it. And that's why it goes on to say in Hebrews 2, for in that he himself has suffered, Jesus, he himself has suffered being tempted. Listen, you're in a trial, you're in a hard time, no matter what the trial is. It says this, Hebrews 2.18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able, has the power to aid those who are tempted. He's been there, he's been through whatever you've been through. And because of that, he's able to come and help you, able to aid those who are tempted. He goes on here in verses 33 and 34. Jesus once again predicts his suffering and death. 33 and 34. And he calls himself what he likes to call himself many times through Mark is the son of man. And he only used that expression of himself. It's only used of him. It comes from Daniel 7, where it speaks there in Daniel 7, the son of man. The Jews would have known this, and the leaders would have known this too. They did at the end. But in Daniel 7, we actually taught on that here. But it talks about the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven in great glory. And he is given a kingdom whose everlasting dominion will never pass away or be destroyed. But here's the thing. He's referring to himself as that son of man here the glorious king, but that's not what he's describing. He's not describing this glory and everlasting kingdom. Look what he says. Verse 33, he says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is always up. Always up, no matter where you're at. Theologically and physically, always up. And the Son of Man, he says, will be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. They'll condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and they shall kill him. And the third day, like we said, the third day, there it is again, he shall rise again. So it speaks twice. I want to just talk about this for a minute in these verses. It talks twice about him being delivered. First by Judas, it says, to the chief priests and scribes who condemn him to death. And then those same chief priests and scribes, it says a second time, the same word, they deliver him to the Gentiles, to the Romans, who will mock, scourge, spit, kill him. They deliver him up to the cross. And so when you read that, it appears that men are doing all this delivering, doesn't it? That they're the ones in control doing to Jesus whatever they want, treating him brutally and with contempt. But that same Greek word for delivered, paradidomi, 
It's used in Romans 8.32, the same word. And it says this, Romans 8.32, to tells us who really delivered Jesus up. It says, he that spared not his own son, but, same word, delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's who really delivered him up. Peter understood this later. He didn't understand it now, but he understood it later after he got filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had talked to him for 40 days, explaining what had happened, opened all of their understanding. They understood the things they don't understand now, then. But in Acts 2, Peter wrote this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. It says, Him, Jesus, being delivered, the same word again, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Those men, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God is what had him delivered, is what Peter writes there. You have taken, he says, you have taken, though. He's pointing the finger to them. God determined all this. God is the one that had him delivered from the foundations of the world. But he says, you have taken him by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. So it's telling us clearly, isn't it? I don't know how to figure all that out, that Jesus was delivered by God. The hatred of men was real and cruel. It was. They crucified him, it says, by wicked hands, but it was all because God had a plan. He was going to satisfy his justice by the death of his son. And here's the thing we need to see is he was delivered. Why? Because of God the Father's love for us. Listen to this, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? You think he enjoyed physically seeing his son suffer? That's not what that's saying, is it? It pleased to bruise him because for God so loved the world that he gave. Really? Isn't that something else? Delivered up to all these wicked men. Had all these things delivered up. Jesus allowed it to happen. The Father allowed it to happen, but he was pleased to have it happen because of his love for us. Because without that, we'd have been dead, gone, perished forever. For God so loved the world that he gave, he didn't spare. And so here Jesus has told this to his disciples now. This is the third time he's going to suffer and rise again. You know, not for his benefit, but for theirs. It's not, none of this has been for his benefit. And here's the thing we're going to move into. It has no effect on them at all. It doesn't move them at all. It should have them weeping, shouldn't it? It should have us weeping. How can that not affect us? To know that he did that for us anytime we hear that. But it doesn't move them at all. And so what we move into and then with James and John, they're not concerned about him at all. They hear what he says is going to happen to him, and what is their concern? It's my first point. They're not concerned about what's going to happen to him. They're concerned about what's going to happen to them. And I'm saying this title of this message is The Path to True Greatness. And the path to true greatness is not being concerned about what happens to us, but the path to true greatness is going to be concerned that God's glory is at the end not our glory. And that's what they're worried about. Look what it says there in verse 35 to 37. He just gets through saying that. What's going to happen to him? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that you would do for us whatsoever we shall desire. He says unto them, well, what would you that I should do unto you? Do for you. And they say, well, grant us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. And so they're coming to him with a lot of ambition, aren't they? As I heard a man say, that's a lot of ambition. They're seeking greatness. <laughs> like a guy said, they want to be crown princes sitting on co-thrones with Jesus. And so they don't care about Jesus except for one thing, what he can do for them. Really? What seats can you get us, Jesus? Like they're getting the best seats at a concert or something. Look at that, verse 35. Look what it says. They come to him, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now you got Matthew's account. 
guess who's leading the charge in Matthew's account? Mama. Yeah, the mom comes up. She's the one who leads the charge. She comes up with James and John. And I think she probably has got her arms around. There's two boys. It says they're kneeling down. I think she's coming up there, big Jewish grin, smile, proud of her boys, right? Each one on either side of her. You read Matthew's account. Jesus says, well, what is it you want me to do? What is it you desire? And she proudly, I'm sure she proudly said this. Grant that each of my two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on the left in your kingdom. Because parents have ambitions for their kids. And she's got ambitions for her boy. Oh, they're good boys. They've always been good boys. <laughs> Taking care of the donkeys, you know, whatever. Done the crops. So what's the problem here? What's the wrong with this request of James and John? So it's not that they're ambitious, because ambition in and of itself is not a sin. It's a God-given quality that's all right. But their ambition is twisted, like every sin is. So sex is not wrong, but when you twist it, it becomes adultery things become twisted. And so here they're ultimately, they're ambitious that they are the end of their ambition, that it's their glory. And Jesus, they're just using him. He's the means for them to get what they want, this glory. That's what's wrong with it. And so, like I said, made themselves the end of their ambition and just using the Lord. And we've got to be careful about that, don't we, ourselves, all of us do. Because they're just sitting in here so we can laugh at them. It's because we all have that temptation, don't we? (laughs) The reason that creation exists is why. Why does creation exist to begin with? For us? No, it exists for the glory of God, doesn't it? What does it say in the Psalms? The heavens declare what? The glory of God. We know that. And that's why, I mean, we get to enjoy it. But God's done that so we can glorify Him for His glory. We are created in the image of God for His glory. And that's Isaiah 43, 7. If you want to write that one down and look it up later, we are created for His glory. The Westminster Confession, they asked questions and answered in the Westminster Catechism. And one of the questions is, the first ones you'll get is, what is the chief end of man? Or another way of saying that is, what's, what's the purpose? What's the purpose that we're created for? And I'm sure there's probably a lot of people know the answer or have heard the answer. To glorify God is the first thing it says, and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God is the reason that we're created. And James and John think they're created for God to glorify them. That's what they're coming to Jesus about, and they've got it all mixed up. Even in our redemption, even in our salvation, it's all to glorify God. To glorify what? His grace, His mercy, His love, His power. Like Rahab we talked about, his power that takes a woman like that and totally transforms and changes her just like he's done with us. It's to his glory. We benefit from it, but it's primarily, isn't it, for his glory? That work of sanctification he does to make us wicked, evil, hateful people and does that change in us. That's what it's all about. And that's what we have in 2 Corinthians 3. But we all with unveiled face and unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. So we're going to glorify God, aren't we? And that's why the whole purpose of salvation as we're changed into his glory. But it's not our glory, it's his glory. And it says, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So the second thing I want to look at, move on here in verse 38. The second point is the path to true greatness is one of suffering and self-denial. Look in verse 38. And they said unto him, he says in verse 38, you know not what you're asking. You don't realize what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say unto him, we can. So they want to partake of the Lord's glory, but how do they want to partake of Jesus's glory? on their terms, don't they? They want to partake of it on their terms, and they're just like the rest of us here. We want to have all the benefits and perks of the kingdom without considering the cost, because Jesus tells them, you all have no idea what you're asking. Isn't that what it said there? You have no idea what you're asking to sit on my right hand or my left. You want to be great, but you don't understand the path that will get you there. Because the path is going to be drinking my cup and being baptized with my baptism. That's how you're going to get there, he's telling them. That's basically what he's saying. 
And they're just, all they can think is, man, we're going to be in Jerusalem in a short time. We'll be there and after a few days or a month. We can wait that out, whatever little trouble we have to. The glory will be worth it. Yeah, we can do it. They're not thinking about what he's saying. They, they don't understand a thing. Oh, yeah, we can do it. Just like the rich young ruler. Just tell me, what must I do to be saved? I'll do anything, Lord. And then when he puts the demands in front of him, he's like, I'm not doing that. Didn't think you'd ask me to do that. Here's what they don't get yet. They don't realize it's not until after the great tribulation, which still hasn't happened, until Jesus is going to come into his full glory. They don't realize that. In the meantime, you know what it means to be on his left hand and on his right hand? That means you're going to be on two crosses next to him with him in the middle, because that's what it says. That same expression. We want to sit one on our right and one on our left. That exact same expression is used in Mark 15 about the two thieves. And with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. We don't look at it this way, but that is where his reign and his glory began, on that cross. Didn't he tell the Father would be glorified in him through his death? <laughs> he would be glorified, and that's where it happens. Uh, they don't want that privilege and honor. That's not what they're asking for on his right hand and on his left. Now, they don't want to be on those crosses next to him. They're not thinking that's what's coming. So whatever he means by that, they don't understand, but they confidently think, oh, yeah, we can handle it. And Jesus is nice to them, isn't he? He's always nice, a lot nicer than I would be. So he knows they don't understand, but he just says it this way to him. He goes, you will. You say you can. I know you really don't understand. I'm not going to try to correct that. You will indeed drink of the cup I'm going to drink of. You're going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. You're going to experience my suffering. And the reason is, and we all need to hear this. If you don't want to hear it, I'm sorry. But there is no true disciple of Jesus that can avoid it. It's the pathway. It's from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to take out suffering and leave it out of your preaching, you're not going to have much of a Bible left. It'd be like the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He went through and took a pen and cut out all the miracles. And his New Testament's about that thin. <laughs> I mean, you can't do that. You can't cut out the supernatural and have anything left of God. But you can't avoid it. No way to avoid self-denial as a Christian. Jesus said, whosoever, that's everyone in here that calls himself a Christian, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and Luke says you can't leave a day out. Can't take a vacation from your cross. He says daily, doesn't he? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 17 that we're children. What a blessing. We're children of God. Know that by the Holy Spirit. He says then we're heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ if... What's this if on there? If so be that we suffer with him. That's how we're children of God. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So something has to come before the crown, doesn't it? And there used to be a little song we used to sing, if you will not bear the cross, you will not wear the crown. And that's the way it is. That's what the Lord said. In Acts 14, Paul gets stoned. And the disciples there are seeing him get stoned and God raises him up. And they're probably thinking, man, oh man, is that what you have to go through to, to get in? Is that the cost? And what does he say? After he was stoned, it says he confirmed the souls of the disciples and exhorted them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And so he tells them, he says, yeah, you will. You don't understand it, but you will indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with my baptism. And so it's not long after he dies in Acts chapter 12, James, the one who's here, is the first martyr. First martyr of the apostles, Herod beheads him. All of the apostles, every single one of them in Acts chapter 5 is beaten by the high priest and the council. But as far as the seating arrangements go, he says, I don't have any control over that. That's what he tells them. Look what it says here. Verse 39, he says, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism I'm baptized, with all shall you be baptized. But, verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand, he says, that is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. 
That's who it is. So he's saying you've got to consider. He's really saying to us, the seating arrangements are in the Father's hand, but you have to consider what you're asking when we want to say we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to say we want to have eternal life. We need to seriously consider that. That's what he's saying. He's saying you need to be thoughtful because we don't want to be like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was hasty, wasn't he? Oh, what must I do? I'll do anything. And then when he's confronted, when the demands confront him or us, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to walk away sad and grieved. So he's asking you, can you drink of the cup and be baptized? Isn't he asking you that? Josh, Thomas, that's what he's asking all of us. Put your name there. Can you do that? So Luke 14, the eager crowds are coming. They all want to hear him. And they're coming, they're gathering around. And he tells them, wait a minute, if you want to come after me, you've got to hate father, mother, sister, brother, even your own life also. And he tells them what? He goes on to say, and you need to sit down and count the cost. If you want to be my disciple, he says, it's like building a tower. You need to sit down and make sure you got enough wood and enough money. Because otherwise, when you start building, if you haven't really counted the cost and listened, and you think this is all just glory and fellowship and fun, and you're not really paying attention to what the Lord's saying, and you start building, and you, you know, he said, they're going to mock you when you quit. He's like, I just don't really have a heart for this. It's getting too hard. He said, no, you need to sit down at the beginning and count the cost if you want to be my disciple. He says it twice. talks about a king going out to war. And I think those seating arrangements he talks about there in verse 4, it's for those who whom it is prepared, I think it's probably going to be a surprise to a lot of us. So it's going to be just the opposite of what a dinner party would be in the White House. They put the president in the middle, and it moves out from there in order of importance. And the less important people, they're clear out in the parking lot somewhere, never to be seen. It's the way that works. But it isn't going to be that way in God's kingdom, is it? It's going to be everything's totally reversed and flip-flop in God's kingdom. That's what we need to seek, because look up in verse 31. This is what he said. He says, but many that are first the ones that seem first important, the greatest, the best, are going to be what? Last. And he says the ones that everybody has a low opinion of, those are going to be the ones that are first. That's what he's saying. So I think it's going to be a surprise. I think Rahab the harlot might be on his right hand. And I think Persis might be on his left hand. You're like, Persis? Who's Persis? Well, he's been in the Bible ever since the Bible was written, the New Testament. Do you know that? He's in Romans 16, 12. Paul wrote the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. He's a nobody, isn't he? No, I've never heard a sermon preached on Persis, and I'm not going to preach one right now. <laughs> but he very well might be on the left hand, couldn't he? Because he was a faithful disciple. I don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be nobody's like that. But the last point we want to look at here is this path to true greatness. It's the path of servanthood. Look what it says there in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. He says, But so shall it not be among you. But whomsoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And so, hey, those other disciples, man, they hear those guys coming and wanting to sit on his left hand. They are upset about that. And it's not because they're embarrassed for him or like what? They're upset because, man, you guys are trying to get a jump on us. We want the same thing. That's why they're upset about that. They're just as ambitious. But John and James, boy, they are the true sons of thunder. That takes some gumption to do what they did. But they did it. And Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, fellas, all of you guys, you need to understand here that the world's view of greatness and God's view of greatness are totally the opposite. And I like what D.L. Moody said. He says, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. And that's what the Lord's saying here. That's what true greatness is. Because look at verse 42, that greatness that's of the world is centered on what? It's centered on self, what I can get, who I can rule over, who I can dominate. And that's what it's saying there. The Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their great ones. The great ones do what? They exercise authority upon them. And John Stott, another 
guy I like to read, he said this. He says, our world, and he would say the church, is full of James and Johns, go-getters and status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements and everlastingly dreaming of success. And all of us are like that to some extent, whether we want to admit it or not. So everybody likes to be around people that make them feel good and give them what they want. People manipulate people in their own way. And that's what he's talking about here. But look at verse 33, Jesus says, it shouldn't be that way among you. Verse 43, but it shall not be among you. Or the NLT says, among you, it's going to be different. Because he says, I'm going to teach you how to be truly great. Because this is the one place the ethics of the New Testament are diametrically opposed to the ethics of the world. Because the world is constantly trying to impress you, to get a following or wanting to be liked. And Jesus is saying, do you want to be great in God's eyes? Then you need to be, the word is, a deacon. The deacon of all. Quietly looking to serve others. That's what he's calling us to, to give, to pray, to help, to be a support. He's saying you want to be great in God's eyes, which ultimately that's all that's going to matter, isn't it? On that day of judgment, that's when we're going to be glad if we've done it his way and God's done a work in us because that's when we want to be a servant of all and not had all this acclaim. And one other thing, Martin Luther, I liked what he said. He says, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You don't have to know any of that stuff. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Now, I thought that was pretty good. Martin Luther King. I don't know about his Christianity, but I liked what he said right there. Anybody in here qualifies for that? My subject and verb all the time are backwards and upside down and everything else. So how can we tell how we're doing? Someone said you can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. <laughs> and that's tough a lot of times. So how do you react? But how you're doing, how do you react when you're given a menial task to do something you think is below your dignity? Or there's something to be done and you could get your wife to do it, but you get up, you do it yourself. You empty the dishwasher yourself, you do whatever, take care of it, whatever it is. Got that servant mentality. And you can think on these verses in Philippians 2. Listen to this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So you read those verses and you think, how do I really measure up to that? How did I measure up to that today? Right? I mean, that's convicting, isn't it? It is for me. It's convicting. And so look in verse 45. He says, Jesus says this. He sets himself up as the perfect example. Verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man, there it is again, this one in glory that's going to have an everlasting kingdom. Hey, what does he say? That son of man came not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here's the thing we need to think about. Jesus was the perfect man. He was. He was the perfect man. And you want to know how the perfect man lived? Look at the life of our Lord. So here is man or woman, whatever, has God intended him to live. And what does it say? He came not to be served, but to serve. We've got to think about that, don't we? Because we tend to be impressed with athletes, actors, politicians, some famous person. But let's be impressed with the life of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus, the perfect man. You want to know how a man should be? It's not Clark Gable. Oh, yeah, he's quite the man in his day from what my dad, my 86-year-old dad, tells me. Yeah, everybody wanted to be like him. No, we need to want to be like Jesus, a servant, which is what he was. 
Look at his life. So you think about it as they move on when the disciples, here they are, they've argued about who is going to be the greatest. And they probably got these bad feelings towards each other, right? And they come to Jerusalem when they finally get there. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> eventually we'll get there. They go to the upper room. And you go into those rooms, you enter a house, normally what happens? You've got servants are there to wash your feet, the guest feet. The trouble was there were no servants in that upper room, were there? Nobody were there. And so here's the question. Which disciple is going to kneel down and start washing the other's feet? None of them. None of them are going to do that. And what happens? The perfect man shows them this is how you should live. They insulted Jesus all the time. They did. I mean, he could have been like, hey, you guys insult me all the time. I'm tired of it. You know, you just, really, I just want to sit over here in a corner and just be left alone. And no, instead it said he set aside his robes, he picked up a towel, and he began to show all of us how a man should live in the sight of God. Isn't that what he did? And prideful Peter was embarrassed. Stop Jesus. You know why? Because he's convicted. So he knew he should have done that. He wasn't going to do that, was he? Never entered his mind that he's going to wash. These two guys were the top three dogs in the boneyard. Peter, James, and John, and those two had the nerve to leave me out of it. Right hand, left hand, there's no hand left for me, Peter, and he's one of the ten that it says he's indignant. Who do you guys think you are? Well, you think Peter is going gonna, gonna to come in his mind, yeah, I'll, I'll wash their feet. Uh-uh. You're going to do that. None of those guys are going to do that. And so Jesus says, I'll set you an example. This is how we should live. Let this be the example we all follow tomorrow and the next day and on. So if you would, I read part of Philippians 2. If you would, just turn over there to Philippians 2, and we'll look at the last part. Here's how the Lord was. I could have quoted it, but I thought we'll read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, right after Ephesians, right before Colossians. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you. Think like this which was also in Christ Jesus, who he was in the form of God. God Almighty thought it was not robbery or a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, but he did what? He made himself of no reputation, took upon him what we're supposed to do, the form of a slave or a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so... He was willing to do that, and look what God did. The same thing he'll do for us if we'll follow in his steps. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and in things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what reason? To the glory of God the Father. Amen. He says, let that mind be in you. Have a servant's heart now towards the Lord and towards other people, and one day it will pay off. We have God's word for that, don't we? That's what we read in Romans 8, 17. If we suffer, we'll reign with him. But the suffering comes first. So back to Mark, verse 45. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And at the end it says there, to give his life a ransom for many. So he was a servant to the point he was willing to lay his life down to pay whose debt? His debt? It was our debt. Because he knew if he didn't pay that price, that was the only way that we could be ransomed. And that means to pay a price so a slave could go free. And I don't know about you, I was a slave to my sin. I was headed to hell. I knew all of that. And the price was what? What was the price that ransom he paid? It was his precious blood. And we were all the slaves in here. And he purchased what with his blood? Our total freedom. Paid all of it. Healing, deliverance, mental well-being. <laughs> the whole package, didn't he? A conscience with sins forgiven. And why did he do that? So we could be free. Not really. So we could be free, but we are now what? We're still slaves. It's like Bob Dylan sang in that old song of his. You got to serve somebody. You're going to serve the devil or you're going to serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody, aren't we? 
But what he's done is he's saying, I'm going to change masters. You're not going to serve that cruel taskmaster, the devil, anymore. I'm taking you out of his kingdom. I'm putting you over here, and you're my slave. And that's a blessing because that's the way we were designed to be, a slave of Christ. We've been made a slave of Christ, bowing our necks to his yoke. But listen to what he says about that. <laughs> that yoke, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we talk about the title of the message, What is the Path to True Greatness? And the Lord Jesus says it as simply as he can. It's being the servant of all, having a servant's heart. And so John, like James, he lived longer. And I don't think it took him this long to get it. But he was an old man and he wrote his epistle, First John, and he understood it. He wasn't clueless all his life by any means. And we'll end with this. This is what he wrote. So we know John 3.16. This is First John 3.16. And listen to what John wrote. He said, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought, we have a responsibility to lay down our lives for others. So the path to true greatness is the path of service and ministry to others. Amen? Amen. That's what the message is tonight. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us. And we thank you most of all, Lord, for that you came down on this earth, that you sent your son who was willing to live a perfect life, set the perfect example for us to live a life of humility and obedience, even to the point of death. And a death he died not for himself, but for us on our behalf. And we're so thankful that he's done that for us. And he's also set an example and given us his spirit that we can follow in his steps, Lord. And I ask you'll impress that upon all of our hearts here that we'll have a servant's heart. And in doing that, Lord, our ambition to be great will be met and will be great in your eyes, Lord, and just show us that that's all that matters in the end. And then we can receive that crown of glory and live with you in glory forever, Lord, if we'll just humble ourselves now and pick up our cross daily. It'll be worth it in the end, and I ask you'll clearly show that to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.